0: That's where we're going to jump in today. So we're going to read from chapter 5, verse 13 on. Let's read this together. Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Remember the context. This is about the grace of God in their lives. They've got freedom because they trust in Jesus. It says, But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Paul begins this section of teaching with a warning to them. He says, don't abuse the freedom that you have. He's effectively saying to them, don't misunderstand what I've been teaching you up to this point and use it as an excuse for even worse behaviour than you displayed before you were a Christian. You see, when we preach and teach the gospel of grace, as Paul has done for the first four chapters of this letter, when you're taught that actually your standing before God is not contingent on your moral performance, but on his kindness and generosity, people can jump to the conclusion, like, oh, amazing. That means I can do whatever I want. <laughs> like I can literally live however I like, and God still loves me and I'm secure, I'm going to heaven like winner. Like I can just like free ride and do whatever I want. If it's not about my performance, then I, who cares what I do? It doesn't make a blind bit of difference to my standing before God. Get in. I'm still saved. God still loves me. Woo! And on the one hand, you could answer, yes. Because it isn't based on your performance. But at the same time, whilst in theory you could, if you've actually received the grace of God, you won't. That's the consistent teaching of Scripture. Actually, if you're even asking the question, does that mean I can do whatever I like? It shows you've missed the point of the Gospel. If you've truly understood and known the effect of god's grace in your life then what that does is it motivates you to want to live in a way that pleases him that honors him that loves and serves others the more you remind yourself of god's grace in saving you and his kindness towards you that's not based on your works but on the finished work of Jesus, then the more your motives change from a desire to live to please yourself and justify yourself and live for your own pleasure to a desire to live to please him and to glorify him. When you find freedom in Jesus, when you come into a relationship with him, when you turn your back on trying to do things your own way and put your trust in him and ask him to forgive you, He fills you with his spirit. We talked about that last week, looking at Acts 2. And he gives you a whole new nature. The Bible tells us if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. We read that actually when we trust in him, he takes out a a heart of stone that's, that's dead against him. replaces it with a heart of flesh that wants to please him and honour him and glorify him. No longer a nature that's motivated by selfish desires and insecurity, but instead a desire to live for the good of others and the glory of God. If you're a Christian, then you are free. You're free from the need to try and prove yourself. You're free from law-keeping as a bid to try and win God's approval. That's, that's the message of the gospel. You're free. But Christian, if you've received God's favour, then the natural response of your heart will be to want to live in obedience to him not to try and win his approval, but out of gratitude that he has approved of you. Grace frees you and causes you to want to live in a way that pleases God, not out of fear of rejection if you don't, but out of an overflow of love because of all that he has given you and done for you. So Paul begins by saying to them and to us, don't abuse your freedom, don't Use your freedom to indulge the flesh. In other words, don't live selfishly to please yourself anymore. You're called to something different. In one sense, grace frees you to do so, to live selfishly. But true grace will also motivate you not to. If you try to use your freedom to indulge the flesh, to live as though you're on the throne of your life, actually just demonstrates that you aren't free at all in fact you're a slave to your flesh, to your desires Paul says if you're in Christ don't live that way that's not what you're called to and he highlights this in verse 13 and 14 he says instead do this serve one another humbly all the law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself that serve one another like we can read that and think oh i can do like some nice things for people that's what it means isn't it like serve one another i could make the teas and coffees on a sunday i could get here a bit early and put out the chairs serve one another i could do that then you you kind of dig into it and you realize that the word serve there serve one another literally means to become a slave to all of a sudden we think, oh, that's a bit more challenging, because by nature we want to be the master, each one of us, actually. We want to interact with each other and with others often for what we can get out of them. That sounds really horrid, because it is, but if we're really honest, we'll recognise that in the way we interact with people often. We interact with them for what we can get from them. In other words, we treat them as slaves. We wouldn't call it that, and we wouldn't think of it that way, but that's actually what's happening. The relationship's to serve our ends, to, to give us what we're looking for in it, rather than one of giving to them. And Paul says grace flips this on its head. Not seeing them as slaves, but being willing to be a slave to them. This is much of what we spoke about a few weeks ago when we looked at 1 Corinthians 13 and talked about love and the way we were to use the gifts God's given us. And so if you weren't there, I'd encourage you to listen to that because we're not going to spend too long on it today. But essentially, this is it. If you are finding your fulfillment in God, if you're secure in his love for you, and his acceptance of you because of what Jesus has done rather than because of what you might do, then actually the result is you won't serve yourself or expect others to serve you. Instead, you'll be willing to become like a slave to others, to put their needs first, to prefer them. If you're satisfied in God, then you know true freedom. And you'll no longer try to indulge the flesh We're going to unpack what the flesh means in a minute when Paul talks about that. But you won't be trying to do it because you won't be living for you anymore. When you delight yourself in God, when you read his word and marvel at his kindness and grace towards you, that he first loved you, that he gave himself up for you completely, when you realise again that's even more than that, he sent his spirit, the spirit of Christ, the very presence of God to, to dwell in you, to encourage you, to equip you, to empower you and to guide you as you walk with him. When you allow those truths to sink in, to nourish you, then it frees you. And that's where Paul goes next. We read on from verse 16. He says this, So I say, live By the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, Paul sets up a tension here between two things the desires of the flesh and living by the Spirit. And he kind of sets these two things up. And he says, these things are warring in your life. They're in conflict in your life. Now, it's really important we note that Paul isn't trying to divide you up into separate parts of flesh and spirit. The Bible teaches that we are created as whole beings in the image of God. You, we don't just kind of separate out into component parts. Paul isn't trying to divide you into parts and say, your body, the flesh, is bad, but your spirit is good. And I think lots of people would view humanity a bit like that. I think particularly in modern society, we would look at the ash, our flesh our body, our physical, as kind of neutral, something to be moulded and adapted to suit our spirit or what people might think of as their authentic self, their true self, the inner person. And they would see these things as separate, but they would want to conform their body to match what they view as their authentic self. We see that lots in society. And there were people around at the time that Paul was writing this who had this view that, that all kind of... They were called ascetics who would see the material as inherently lesser than the spiritual. And the flesh was kind of like dirty and unhelpful and bad and the spirit was... And so they could read this and be like, ah, oh, see, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying like, oh, the flesh... Your humanity, that's really bad, but your spirit's really good. That isn't what Paul's doing. We mustn't read that into it. What he's speaking about is this. The word flesh is a word sarks. Uh, that's translated flesh. And it, it just means our human nature or our sinful nature. Our socks, our sinful nature is the part of us that wants our way instead of God's way. John Piper, a pastor and theologian, writes Flesh does not simply refer to the physical part of you. Paul doesn't regard the body as evil in itself. The flesh is your ego, which feels an emptiness and uses the resources at its power to try and fill it. Flesh is the I who tries to satisfy me with anything but God's mercy. In other words, the flesh, as Paul pictures it here and talks about it, wants us to be our own Lord and Saviour. The flesh wants us to define ourselves and fulfil ourselves apart from God. To say, God, I don't need you. I don't need you to save me. I'm not interested in your grace. Like I, within me, have the answers. That's what Paul's referring to here when he talks about the flesh. The flesh rejects the offer of Christ and salvation. It doesn't trust the goodness of God. It thinks it knows better. It says, God, I don't need you. I can save myself if I even need saving. That's the flesh, as Paul is talking about it. And the outworking of living according to the flesh is looking anywhere and everywhere other than God to find fulfillment in our lives. That's, that's what it looks like. And we do that so much. <laughs> that is how humanity Lives for the most part. And we see it clearly in the list Paul goes on to give from verse 19. We read this He says, The acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Let's just look at that list for a minute. Paul begins with these first three of sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. All the words he uses there are all about sexual sin, all about what we do with our bodies sexually to try and find pleasure or fulfillment. What's underneath that kind of behavior? Whether it's viewing pornography or an extramarital affair or whatever it might be. What's underneath that? Well, what drives that behaviour ultimately is a belief that watching that thing or engaging in that activity will somehow satisfy us. That it will somehow fill up what we feel is lacking. At a subconscious level, that's what's going on we pursue those things those pleasure avenues to try and feel satisfied or fulfilled or whole in some way and paul says this is the work of the flesh it's trying to fill up what's lacking without god in the equation he goes on to idolatry well Idolatry is really simple. That's just worshipping a false God. That's what he's talking about. It's setting someone or something else up in the place of the one true God and worshipping that or them. It's trying to replace God with a poor substitute. That's what he's talking about. But witchcraft. Witchcraft is just looking to other spiritual forces to in some way imitate or fake the work of the Spirit of God. And so we we feel the need for some kind of spiritual connection. And instead of looking to God to meet that and to fulfill us and satisfy us in that way, we look to counterfeits, to find some kind of connection. The next set, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. Well, they're all about how we relate to other people. They're all forms of brokenness in relationship that proceed from putting yourself in the place of God on the throne of your life. When you think that the world revolves around you, even subtly, most of us wouldn't admit to like viewing ourselves that way, but most of us a lot of the time do. That's the truth of it, and it's how we live a lot of the time. Viewing yourself as the most important person in your story instead of God, having a this is about me and what I can get out of it approach to life rather than a loving what can I give means that your relationships with others often end up looking like that list because you approach people in relationships looking for them to fulfill you in some way. And when they fail to meet your expectations or fail to live up to what you had hoped or they fail to make you feel the way you hoped they would make you feel, then what comes out is anger or jealousy or fits of rage. Yeah? These are the, the way we respond to others when we were hoping that they would meet something in us that they don't does that make sense yeah this brokenness in relationship comes out of a putting ourselves at the center and expecting others to meet a need in us that we feel that really only god can satisfy and when we try and fill it with other people and we relate to people in that way, then when inevitably they fail to do what we were hoping they would, it results in anger, disappointment, frustration, brokenness. And then the last couple of things Paul mentions here is drunkenness. And then we get this, it seems like a strange jump from drunkenness to us because he listed all the sexual sin at the start, and in our language we're not very good at relating this to anything other than sex. There's drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And you just think, I mean, that's a pretty diverse batch, Paul. Like, drunkenness, orgies, and just, you know, all the stuff. Things like that. But actually, they're, they're tied, linguistically. When he says drunkenness and orgies, he's, it sounds a strange thing in, to our mindset, but what he's talking about is like a kind of drinking orgy. Like gathering with others for the purpose of substance abuse and excess it's not sexual in the context he uses it it's about an abuse of alcohol or substance well what's this about, drunkenness and and this kind of excess use of substances well it's like the others when you're trying to suck things in to try and fill you up that's where some of us go with substances, we, we look to substances to, that bring us a, a form of pleasure or escapism to try and free us from our troubles or make us feel a sense of wholeness in that moment. We're, we're trying to use them to plug a gap that only God can really fill. And so then all of these things that Paul lists here, the works of the flesh, are actually just a result of going through life trying to fill up. That's what it looks like. Whether it's pleasure or possessions or position or people, when we go through life trying to fill up and consume what's around us to try and feel satisfied in some way, these are the things that eventually end up marking our life and our interactions. And then Paul goes on in this passage to say something that that some of us may find particularly troubling on a first read because if we're honest, we will all recognise some of that list in our own hearts. Yeah? Like if you read that list and you don't recognize at least some of it, then you're deluded. Okay? I lovingly, I just want to say that to you. The Bible says if we claim to have no sin in us, (laughs) we're a liar. And so having read that list, Paul says something that that we think, oh gosh, (laughs) what are the implications of this? Because we read on and he says, This, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you go, Oh, (laughs) like what, like, will not inherit the kingdom as in meaning is not a Christian, will not go to heaven? Yeah, that's what Paul's saying. And so then we need to take care to understand what he actually means here. And I need to take care in how I express this. Because there are two things that I want to avoid. And the first is this, I I really want to avoid anyone who is truly a Christian feeling unnecessarily unsettled and insecure in their faith as a result of what this passage has to say but i also don't want anyone to go away feeling a false sense of security that they shouldn't have because there is a warning here and it's one we need to hear So when paul writes this what he's not saying is if you've ever done these things then you will not inherit the kingdom the phrase he uses to live like this is about an ongoing or habitual, unrepented of behaviour. A heart set against God in rebellion bears this fruit consistently. And so what Paul's trying to say is this is about what your life is marked by. Like not have you ever done any of these things, do you consistently live like this? And are you content in it? Because if you are, there's a warning. But the, the contrast is, are you quick to repent and apologise when these things crop up in your life? Are you quick to ask God to forgive you and to ask him to help you to live for his glory and the good of others, to not do those things? Not only you can answer that for yourself but if there is a, there is a felt tension when you do these things, instead of feeling at ease and comfortable about it, but you go oh, oh Lord please forgive me for my brokenness I recognise I'm still so unlike you, will you fill me by your spirit and help me to live for you? Only you can answer that. But how you do actually says everything about the state of your heart before God. And Paul goes on to contrast the acts or works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit, which is where we're going to spend the rest of this series. He says this, if those things mark the life of someone who is in rebellion against God, then these things are the marks of someone who is living surrendered to him, full of the hope of the gospel. We read this from verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You hear... We read now about the life of someone who is not trying to fill up on other things, who is not going through life trying to work out what will satisfy me, what will fill me up, what will make me feel whole, but instead is at peace with God, full of the Spirit of God, and yields fruit accordingly. uses the phrase the fruit of the spirit it's just another way of saying what grows out of a heart and life surrendered to God and living in the good of what Jesus has done unlike the flesh that says I want to go my way I want to do it on my own I want to please myself the spirit longs to conform the Christian to the likeness of Jesus It's one of the reasons that one of our points as a church, one of our pursuits together, is growing like Jesus. Because that's actually what this is about. See, the work of the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit Paul is referring to here, wants to conform or shape a Christian more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, who perfectly exhibited all of these things. And a Christian who's surrendered to God and who's full of the Holy Spirit will long for the same and will see in their life the gap and will say, God, would you help me to grow in that way? Would you help me to grow more like Jesus? It doesn't mean you won't have a battle, okay? (laughs) Like you're going to go to your grave struggling with some of those things on the work of the flesh list. Just... Like, I wish it weren't so. I wish I could tell you that wouldn't be the case. But I'd be lying. You'll go to your grave knowing this tension. But if you're a Christian, you'll be growing in this as well. There'll be less of that and more of this as you grow to maturity. Now, it's no accident that Scripture uses the word fruit or the picture of fruit as the image instead of works or acts. You notice it was works of the flesh. But then Paul changes language, and he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. There are a couple of reasons for it, I think. One is that fruit is not instant. When you become a Christian, you don't all of a sudden become the most loving, patient, gentle, kind, generous Person that ever walked the face of the earth. Fruit is not instant, it takes time to grow. But whilst it isn't instant, it is inevitable. A, a fruit tree will bear fruit. And so if you're a Christian, these things will grow in your life. A Christian will bear this kind of fruit. If someone has the Spirit of God in them, they will bear fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in their lives. It's inevitable. It will take time, but your life will become increasingly marked by these things. Now, it's really important that we note this isn't a to-do list of things that save you. Yeah, remember, Paul spent the first of his letter to the Galatians telling them what God had done for them and the results of that in their life if they accepted and received that. Not 75% of all the things they had to do in order for God to accept them. That hasn't changed. That's still the same. We don't have to be loving, patient, kind, gentle, self controlled, all of these things in order for God to love us. That's not how it works. But when we receive his love, when we live in the good of his love, when we know his kindness towards us, this is what begins to bubble out. It's like the good news of Jesus, the gospel, that you're not saved by your works or your merit, but on the free gift of Jesus Christ, is like the fertilizer that causes this stuff to grow in your lives and the more you sink your roots down deep into that truth, the freer you are to begin living like this. It's also really important that we need to note that it's fruit, singular, and not fruits, plural. And it's really important that we notice this because a Christian will be growing in all of these attributes, not just one or two and the part of the reason that's really important to note is that we all feel a natural affinity to some of them like we're naturally more patient or generous or gentle than we are some of the others and that's not because of a work of the spirit in our lives as much as it is to do with our upbringing or experiences in life Tim Keller in his commentary on Galatians, really helpfully observes it like this. He says, for example, some people are temperamentally gentle and diplomatic. So you could say they exhibit gentleness. But the sign this is not actually due to a work of the Spirit is that such people are often not bold or courageous, which would be characteristic of faithfulness. Because of what Paul says about the unity of the fruit, this means that a sort of gentleness that isn't also characterised and coupled with faithfulness is not a real spiritual humility, but just a temperamental sweetness. John, in John chapter 4, says this, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother... He is a liar. This is still Keller. He says, notice that he does not say, if a man loves God but doesn't love his brother, he is unbalanced. No, he says he is a liar. Because true love for God, love, is always accompanied by love to others. Kindness. If they are not both there, then neither are truly there. There are many, many cases of this. Some folks seem happy and bubbly. You could say they exhibit joy and are good at meeting new people, but are unreliable and cannot keep friends. They don't exhibit faithfulness. This is not real joy, but by being an extrovert in nature, some people seem very unflappable and unbothered or peaceful. But they're not necessarily kind or gentle This isn't real peace, but indifference and perhaps cynicism. It enables you to get through the difficulties of life without being always hurt, but desensitises you and in the end makes you less approachable. I think Tim Keller makes a very good point. See, apart from the spirit, we will not consistently grow in all of these attributes. We may display some in a lopsided way, At times, as a result of our upbringing or experience that we have been through, but that is not the picture of a mature Christian that Paul paints here in Galatians chapter 5. It's a holistic list. We don't get to choose. You don't get to be like, well, you know, right now I'm just, you know, I want to work on patience. I'll get to self control later. (laughs) Like, you don't get to choose. It's also important that we notice this list can't be taken and hyper-individualized. We we take sometimes scripture like this and we just make it like all about me and God. We suck it out of the context of community. But we can't do that because the only way to evidence this fruit, if you notice, is in community, is in how you relate to others. How are you going to be patient if you've got no one to be patient with? How are you going to display love if you have no one to be loving towards? How do you know if you're kind or gentle if you're not responding to and interacting with other people? You can't and you don't. All of these things only really mean anything when there are other people involved. You won't grow to maturity on your own. And you were never supposed to. God intends for Christians to work this out in community, in the context of the local church. We find ourselves responding with frustration and impatience, even anger at times. We see it in each other. It gives us opportunities as a church to speak to one another, to encourage one another, and to pray, Lord, forgive me for responding that way to them. Fill me up. Help me to grow more like you. you know, Our aim each week of this series is going to be to show how a right understanding of the gospel helps us to grow in this fruit so this week we're not looking in depth specifically at love because we looked at it a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 13 in our gifted series in summary it's this though security in the love of God expressed in the person and work of Jesus results in freedom to really love others that's what happens to love out of the overflow of what we've received, not with an agenda, not for what we stand to gain from that person, not to try and fill ourselves up for something that we feel is lacking, but instead to pour out into their lives for their good. That's real love. And it's only possible when we understand the love of God towards us. And then finally Paul writes this, in verse 24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. We have to remember this fruit is inevitable, even though it's not instant. But it's inevitable in the lives of those who have put their trust in Jesus who have what does he say here crucified the flesh or put to death trying to do things their own way or trusting in themselves to save them and instead have found forgiveness and fullness of life in Jesus so I want to ask you do you want to grow in love in joy in peace and patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness, self-control. See, I'd wager there's not a single person in this room that wouldn't say yes to all of those things. I want to be more like that. I recognize that those are good attributes. What's the answer? Do do you want those things in your life? (laughs) Then come to Jesus. That's the answer. Invite the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Make it your aim to walk in step with the Spirit. That's what Paul says. Daily to delight yourself in his goodness, in the forgiveness that you have in him, to ask him to help you grow more like him, to live his glory and for the good of others. I want to pray for us to that end and then Johnny and Sophie and Maddie are going to come and lead us in worship. Lord, The truth of this is, is that we each recognize brokenness in our own lives. Lord, we each recognize how at times we can be more like a a vacuum cleaner, trying to suck stuff in to fill up in some way. Whether that's in how we interact with possessions or with people, we recognize that brokenness in our lives and the destruction and damage that that causes. Jesus, we thank you that the answer is found in you. That you lived the polar opposite of that. You came and you gave and you gave and you gave that we might have life and life in all its fullness. And so, Jesus, I, I pray for each one of us that you would help us to come to you now. To find all that our hearts need, satisfied in you, to recognize that because of what you've done, there's nothing for us to prove, nothing for us to earn. We can be fully satisfied and fully content because we're fully loved and approved of by you. And that gives us such security Security that allows us by your kindness and your grace to grow in these things, to exhibit love and generosity and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Lord, I pray that you would do something in us right now by your Holy Spirit. Why don't you, if you want to grow in this in yourself, why don't you just respond to God where you are and say, Lord, I, I want that for me. I'm tired, maybe you say this for the first time this afternoon, I'm tired of trying to fill up on all this different stuff. I'm tired of trying to fill up on relationships and possessions and position and prestige. I want to come this afternoon and rest in the goodness of God. Lord, we thank you that you promise when we come and when we confess that you're faithful to forgive. So we confess our brokenness now. We confess our attempts to try and fill up apart from you. And we say, Lord, would you forgive us? And would you fill us now by your spirit? That we would be people who rest in you who find security in you. And out of the overflow of that, live lives marked by the fruit of your spirit for the good of others and for your glory. Amen.